Hello and welcome to the Ireland on the Fly podcast about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland. Myself and Tom mentioned some time ago that we wanted to start a bit of a book club here on the podcast to discuss the best Irish fly fishing books. And so this week we're kicking it off with an episode on Kingsmill Moore's A Man May Fish, the seminal work on fly fishing in Ireland, of course. And to help us give context and background to Kingsmill Moore, we spoke to Patrick Gageby, a barrister and fly angler who also co-wrote the foreword to an edition of O'Gorman's The Practice of Angling in Ireland. Patrick reveals some fascinating first-hand insights about Kingsmill Moor and the places he fished, and it's well worth listening to. But first, Tom, where do you place a man-made fish in the pantheon of Irish fly fishing books? I have to say, it has to be up there at number one, without a, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, if you look at how many times uh, the two of us in the podcast, with whoever we've on, I, I've, I've mentioned it, and... Uh, and we have such a broad range of people to interview, but it's, it's you know, we we're talking about it in fly tying. We're talking about it in sea trout fishing. We're talking about it in, um, you talk about gillies with Jamesy. You know, it just covers so much. It's like, uh, particularly with trout fishing, all right, I, will, I will say that, but particularly with trout fishing, it covers nearly everything for the Irish trout, the Irish trout angler. When did you first get your first copy of it? Well, it was interesting because we were discussing it and I'd say why afterwards. But the copy I have is an original and it was my dad's. And it's from 1960s, from the first print, first editions by Harris of London or something. And uh, my dad it signed at the bottom and I signed it then when I was in third year in school because I, I had it in school with me. So I've, I've sitting on a Tom Sullivan third year. So I that meant I would have started reading that back in 1982. So did he give it to you or did you rob it for school? I stole it. <laughs> I, without a doubt. But the only thing was, my dad loved his fishing. Wasn't a great book reader. Uh, Mike, well, and particularly with fishing, more into mechanics and things like that. And cars, definitely read up about that. But the odd copy of Trout and Salmon, the odd bit. But um, so it wasn't missed. I mean, to be honest here, and another one we got, they had an original copy of Barker's An Angler's Paradise. What and year was that? I, yeah, that was 1927, which I still have. And whatever way it was printed, some of the pages were still joined. I actually had to cut them. They, you know, they, they'd fold over and they were still joined. So that'll just tell you, Bob wasn't a huge, huge book reader. Liked his fiction, no doubt, and knew of Kingsman Moore and everything. Don't think he ever met him or anything. Paul would have been more Ina. And Kingsman Moore would have been fishing Costello at times, even though there, there might have been a small crossover. But um, yeah, no, anyway, yeah, hands up, I stole it. <laughs> and I presume you were there like either in the evening time or the back of class kind of flicking through it, was it? Like? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very interesting one about uh, back of class. I, I'm going to digress a bit. But Roger O'Neill and myself, uh, Roger comes fishing with me every May all the time. Uh, but we're in the back of Irish class once and Fred the head uh, came the Irish teacher uh, Fred Murray and he spotted us at the back that we had this glossy mag and he came storming down ripped the magazine off us and looked at it as if to say I've got you and like I think with the glossy mag I think I know what he expected what is this filth (laughs) and it was trout fisherman (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> with some guy holding a big rainbow out of the cover. And he looked at the cover 
And he looked at the two of us and more or less said, God, you're sad. And threw it back at us. <laughs> so, yeah, so needless to say, I never brought man my fish into class, but I did bring trout fishermen. <laughs> Good. And and tell me this at home, like you said, there was was there was there growing up, there wasn't a huge amount of fly fishing books on the shelves. Like, ah, there wouldn't have been a huge amount. No, there wouldn't have been a huge amount. No, just a couple, just a couple. So yeah, no, I started it then. So I started reading at fifteen. When did you get into it? Kingsman Moore was well. See, it was really only when I first started taking up fly fishing was about fifteen years ago. And as I said, there was two books that was kind of basically recommended to me. One was Peter O'Reilly's Fly Fishing in Ireland. And then the other book, that, the name that kept coming up was Kingsman Moore's Man May Fish. And um, for me, what it really whetted my appetite was, I think it's for some people, mate, but you can either pick up everything between the flies, the, you know, the, 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 the kind of scientific side or the kind of cultural romanticism of, of the fish. And, and for me, it was the stories of fly fishing out the West. Like, you know, I, mm. I've always had a grow. My mum's family's from, from outside Oranmore. So I've always had a grow for the, the Connemar in the West and, it was like I said, it was like harking back to and I think I think I was probably naive enough at that stage when I was first starting going, Jesus the fish and I have to get out there. It sounds brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> not, yeah. not realizing it was it had changed quite a bit since the nineteen sixties. <laughs> it's one of those I haven't always I always dip in and out of it, I find. Um Yeah, I, it's like, one that you can dip in and out of, isn't it? Yeah. And even like just in advance of talking to Patrick, like, I think I just, in about 24 hours, I was able to just, and it's easy reading, you know, and it's, it's the best compliment I think you can always give to a writer. It's just, it's easy reading. Like, you know. Well, that's very interesting. And um, Patrick says this when we're talking to him, like, and I was just about to say to you, it's, it's such an easy read. But then when he goes, he talks about, you know, on the legal side of it and how some of the judgments and what he wrote was so clear and precise, you know, and stood the test of time. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. But I think that harkens back. I mean, not really surprised to hear that when we talk about how easy it is to read and how he's so vivid and gets across the likes of Jamesy or the likes of fishing Karakilawalia uh, in the Costello system. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And it's, I'd recommend just listening to that. And for, for the Patrick Gageby interview, it's really interesting. And, um, because of Patrick's own um, legal background. So he was, a, he, and it's well worth listening to that part of it where he's able to talk about Kingsman Moore's legal influence and his standing within legal circles. And like you said, there's a lot of crossover there in terms of kind of his own um, clarity of writing and clarity of thought, I think, which kind of which all helped it. So there's some, I, for me, actually, there was really interesting parts from Patrick that I don't think I've heard anywhere else, just specifically from, from the kind of legal aspect. And it gives you kind of a more rounded kind of, I think, picture uh, an insight into Kingsmill Moore uh, yeah. as, as well. Like, I definitely felt that because I was saying, like, you know, didn't really, wasn't too sure of what type of a, a man Kingsmill Moore was, you know, a fantastic writer. But he definitely, uh, you know, through some of the things like the nomination when he was going to the Senate and things like, you know, um, really, it was lovely. It gives it, like, gave me another, uh, another view or an insight into Kingsmill Moore, the man himself. Definitely, definitely. Um, sure, look, let's hear from um, Patrick now. Um, and I first asked him why a man may fish remains so influential and important over 60 years since first being published. I think there's really two things, and they're quite different things. Firstly, Kingsman Moore was a very thoughtful fellow. And uh, he did a lot of uh, thought about flies and fly colours, why a particular fly might work here and work there. Was there, for instance, uh, such a thing as a, 
uh, a great Irish fly, and of course there really was, and he was the progenitor of uh, many of them, uh, the Bumbles and whatnot. Um, but he, he had a very inquiring mind, and he didn't just read stuff and then regurgitate it. So he observed, he was a very good uh, observer of uh, fish, fisheries, but also of people. So there's a very substantial amount in the um, book about why do fish take, why does the fly work, why does this fly work and not that fly. And it's all, you know, against a background in which there's an extraordinary amount of, uh, um, I'm going to say, unscientific um, uh, um, storytelling in uh, fly fishing. But this was actually a very rigorous mind at work. And he was very interested in anything to do with fish, fishing and fisheries. But the second part of the book, I find is much the more charming, is his stories of fishing. Not, not that he, he, he didn't recount how many fish he caught or how many fish he lost, but the fact that he took such enormous joy in the Irish countryside. And anybody who lives in a town or a city like I do, and perhaps you do as well, uh, knows how wonderful it is and was to get out of town and suddenly to be uh, on, a, on a lake beside a river, night or day or whatever, in a completely different world. And, you know, he really captured that. And he did an enormous love of the Irish countryside. You'll also notice when you read the book in its non-technical forms, he's very careful about the place names, which he loved. I mean, he loved the Connemara, um, the, the lakes of the plain, as he called them, from oil. He talks about Shanawana, Clahar, Carrick, Kilawalia, and all that sort of stuff. And for a man who was, uh, you know, educated, or secondary school anyway, in uh, Marlborough in England, he was a man who lived through the birth of the state and was a very, very uh, committed and interested part of the state. So really for me, there are the pen pictures of the places that I myself then went to because he had spoken of them. The Slaney, I fished where he used to fish, in fact, where his mill house was and where everything was washed away in the big flood. Um, I've fished uh, Delphi at a time before it was anything like it currently is, when you know you could rent the entire fishery for 150 pounds a week, um, and you had to share the river with canoeists, poachers, <laughs> everybody else. Um, I haven't fished some of the the Cashla, uh, uh, fisheries and things like that, but why is it important? Because I think it is two quite different strands. Firstly, a very very beautiful romantic part. And an incredibly practical one, so that's why I place it. I, yeah, and it's, it, it occurred to me just when I was rereading again. I've read it so many times, but it, it, yeah, that's what occurred to me exactly was that you have the scientific, very specific, you know, yeah. stuff you can learn, and then you're taken into the kind of literary romanticism of kind of the countryside. So you've got the the both, and I, I often think if the book was just one had only just been the scientific part, it would have been good. If yeah. it had been just the romantic literary part, it would have been good. But the sum of its parts, I think, is what really kind of lifts the book as a whole. Yeah, that's true. And the, the other thing is um, he references quite a lot um, J.R. Harris or Dick Harris, 
um, you know, the Anglo's entomology. And, you know, that's a very big part of Irish um, history and uh, fly fishing because it's a, Dick Harris's book is a fine book. And I remember him very well from Garnet and Keegan's. And he was a, a really wonderful um, uh, old fellow. And he knew his stuff. Uh, if you said to him, uh, I'm thinking of fishing the Minolte stream, he'd say, well, you should go to this place and that place. And uh, you need to put three flies on the cast. And he gives you the, the size, the order, uh, <laughs> and all of those things. And he was usually right as well. Tom, uh, as a Connemara man, reading about these places, like, does it just stir the heartstrings when you're reading it like you know does it evoke something well, it's very interesting that you say that patrick about you know you got to fish the slaney places yeah. i remember the first time I, i've only fished it once i actually went up to shanawana and to fish yeah. it and i think one of the reasons i wanted to fish it was because of that chapter in a man they fish did you bring uh, your ham sandwiches <laughs> i did and i no no sure i had mucilin at that stage he didn't have mucilin that was his fault yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I remember that, the grease line and the, the ham sandwiches. Yeah, but um, all those things. And, and it's it's funny that you should say that it's exactly what I've always thought because I've reread it a bit and I've read it so many times just for this. And I was just looking at the, you know, that he got a, fr- a photographer friend to take infrared photography, to, yeah. you know, of when he was trying to perfect the perfect black body for the Kingsman. Yeah. And yet then he talks, as I'm doing a piece and I may use it, of night fishing on a stream going into Palafuca Reservoir. Yes. And it goes that, that bit of night fishing, you know, where you're almost one foot into the, as he says, the land of the, the gods, and then you're brought back, but you look back into the, 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 the bleached sand where there might be uh, the, what is it, the hoof mark of goats. No, uh, no, 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 no. Sorry, I'm, it? Going to re- I'm going to read it. Yeah, page 40. Yeah. yeah. He says, the value of night fishing is as a sedative to fretted nerves and a tired brain. A sedative, yet something more, a portal of escape from the instancy of the present. As the night deepens, the river takes command. Its voice mounts, filling the valley, rising to the rim of the hills, no longer one voice, but a hundred. Time and place are dissolving. The centuries have lost their meaning. Timelessness is all. One foot is crossing the invisible frontier which bounds the land of the old gods. Mm-hmm. Then comes the whistle of an otter, the bark of a fox, and you're back in the world of sentiency. Almost, you fear, to turn less black upon the moon-blanched stand, sand, there should be the hoof marks of a goat. And yeah. uh, I, that I had remembered uh, from the first and second and tenth time I read it. Yeah, because yeah. We've all been there, and certainly if you've ever fished in Connemara for white trout on a warm summer's evening, uh, uh, there's often nearly every one of those things present, including the odd goat. This is the thing now, because I'm just wondering, because is it just purely a goat, or here's what I'm thinking. You know the old the old Irish piss rogue about, you know, the devil was at the dance hall, right? Yes, yes, I do, yes, and, yes. And that was all that was left when they looked was there was... Um, goat prince where he had stood because the devil has cloven hoofs as feet. It might also be Pan who has goat's feet. Pan, Pan all right. You see, yeah. Uh, it's so, a possibility, but the thing is, 
Kingsmill Moore was uh, very well educated and very mm. well read, but he didn't parade it, you know. Mm. Um, it's nice there. So there's a, a, at least two constructions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, but I think that's, and that's what you just touched upon between the first and the second part. I think that's why so many people like it. Yeah. It appeals you know? to different, different, uh, yeah. different strands of the. I, actually, can I? It's funny that was one of the thumbed um, pages I had. Uh, <laughs> another bit, of just speaking of the fairies and all that kind of stuff. It's um, it's about Shanawona. Um, yeah. It says um, uh, where they toiled up the bare granite ribs of the first range. The sun shone hotter than ever. All the color had been bleached out of the countryside. The slippery grass had faded to an ash grey and over the rich blacks and browns of the peat, a dry grey scurf had spread. The heather was prematurely over while large patches showed withered and dead. We dared not traverse the slope for we were following a compass line and had to go straight over everything. Up we went and down we went to the valley where the yellow river, a noisome oily snake of stagnancy, gave us some trouble in crossing, and then at last up onto the final plateau, beyond the crest of which we hoped to find our goal. And then he goes on, but there's a line I love, and he goes, my companion reminded me that we were now in the core of the haunted country, and probably on the fairy high road from Carrow to Ross's. What we were hearing might be fairy music, a theory which at first seemed strengthened when we realized the sound really was coming out of the earth under our feet. Mm. That's, yes, indeed. Oh, it just brings you there, doesn't it? Like, you know, it's just, and I think part of the other, like Tom, what we were saying there in terms of the lyricism and the, the, the poetry of the lines is it also harks back to, doesn't it, a kind of a lost fishing Eden in many respects, you know, that. Yes, and that's a phrase he uses uh, when he talks about the end of um, the two hostelries in um, Delphi and in Old Head when Alec Wallace Yes, sort of, uh, got tired of the regulations from the tourist board and sort of packed up everything and went off to Afghanistan. And he ends that chapter with saying another little Eden had vanished. But of course, the Eden he, he's describing is really the great company. It's not just that the fishing was good. It's that the company was good and the evenings were pleasurable and there might be stimulating and interesting uh, uh, talk, you know, and uh, one link I have to that is that he mentions frequently his fishing companion, Noel Gogarty, who is the son of uh, Oliver St. John Gogarty. And Noel was in the, sa- was in the same um, line of business that I am. So I got to know him a bit and would often sit in the coffee room and ask him about Delphi in the old days, fishing here, uh, Kingsmill Moor and stuff like that. And like Kingsmill Moore, um, uh, I think Noll had been possibly educated in Britain, but he certainly spoke with a very, a very polite accent, if I can use that <laughs> phrase. And again, that's, um, you know, would have been part of, I suppose, uh, uh, Kingsmill Moore's um, background. I mean, he had, um, he had both um, been educated in um, England, but had subsequently then, uh, uh, gone into Trinity College and become auditor of the College Historical Society, ended up being a senator for about three or four years. Very progressive in his day. I mean, one of the things that's noted, <clears throat> that's noted particularly um, about him is that the second time he stood for the uh, Senate, 
in I think '44. All of his nomination papers he 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 sought to be signed by women, which was I think uh, uh, quite unusual in 1940s Ireland. So um, you know. I mean, it wasn't just about uh, old fellas sitting around uh, uh, moaning about the old days. <laughs> and, and, and interesting, actually, he does credit um, his wife. Um, Very much so, yes. For pushing him to write this book in the first place, that mm, she yes. is basically the one. And then, of course, I, what I love, and this is to the memory of my wife, who made so many fears groundless and so many dreams a reality. Yeah, and, uh, you know, he does reference the fact that... Uh, uh, she seems to have spent a lot of time with him in the rowing boat. Because <laughs> yeah. there is mention that she would be sitting in the uh, uh, prow wrapped in very heavy blankets. And can, can you imagine, uh, you know, after de- uh, hour seven or eight of a, the, a large bit of rain coming across the corrib? Very patient, yeah. I have to say. Dedication. <laughs> and he was also, because I, uh, for this, I was looking up, I could never, I never really garnered what Saracen was. And then I looked up Saracen, which is an under the, the original print. You know, it's by, by uh, T.C. Kingsland Moore, and it's under Saracen. And he wrote a book of poetry under that name in 1921. Yes, <laughs> a, uh, when he had just come back from the war, finished being the auditor of the, the, the HIST, as it's uh, called in Trinity, yeah. and was just starting his uh, career at the bar. Um, uh, I haven't read it, I would have to say, but I have read the poetry that's to be found in A Man May Fish. And uh, from the beginning to the end, I think it's really um, uh, great, including the bit um, Requiescam, which suggests that his kindly spirit is looking on where the angler treads along the river. What what the picture I'm getting here is actually, uh, may have had a preconceived notion of of Kingsman Moore, um, that it's not really sticking to it. I mean, when you say with his nomination papers, um, yes. yeah, that he, he seems to have been, um, I, I, for some reason, and I, I want to say this right, but I, I'd always thought that he might have been a bit of a stick in the mud, right? Yes. Uh, you know, and I've, I've tried to put it as well, you know, but um, obviously I don't think he was, was he? No, and, you know, you would have thought just looking at a very cursory um, view that perhaps with all of his background and stuff like that, he'd be rather stuffy. Um, mm. But actually he wasn't. And uh, um, the Dictionary of Irish Biography entry is written by um, Jerry Hogan, who's a judge of the Supreme Court. And I mean, he, 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 he notes that, you know, I mean, Kingsmill Moore came back from the war and within two or three years, the state had been founded. And he was uh, credited with, you know, being able to adapt and change from uh, the United Kingdom into the free state and stuff like that. And he was very engaged. I mean, he was a senator for four years. He, he was a correspondent for the Irish Times when he was quite young. And he had quite a broad practice, uh, which was a bit unusual. Um, he didn't just do land cases or accident cases. I mean, he did a couple of um, murder cases as well. And in, in the Senate, you know, he was thoughtful and civilised. One of the things, for instance, that he that he's references having spoken particularly about in 1946, uh, in one of the debates, he spoke about prison conditions, um, uh, referencing back 
some of the IRA prisoners, sorry, well, only one or two, I think, who had gone on hunger strike uh, during the Second War in Ireland. So, I mean, he, you know, he was, he was not, you might say, a typical son of, the, um, of a, a Church of Ireland clergyman. I, I get the sense that he could, whatever he turned his hand to, he, you know, he did well and he succeeded in whatever he could have put his mind to. Oh, yeah, he was very much one of the leading uh, judges. And he, his was an important voice because at the time there was a convention that there would always be somebody on the Supreme Court who wasn't Roman Catholic, as people said in those days. Uh, and it was a convention. Uh, um, uh, I don't think it, uh, anybody bothers with that now. But at the time uh, he was, but he was very much an, an engaged man, engaged in the country um, and, uh, you know, a, a, a very fine judge. Perhaps one of the best, amongst about five or six in the last hundred years, the best five or six people for really clear writing and thinking. And, <laughs> you know, not full of false learning, like, you know, um, shovel loads of Shakespeare, or that sort of stuff, or even Latin. <laughs> is there a sense nearly, and this is very unusual to say when we're talking about a fly fishing um, Yeah. That nearly a man may fish has kind of overshadowed his actual other real accomplishment in life, that he's known for a man may fish as opposed to the legal side of things. Yeah, well, um, I mean, I have the benefit of being uh, both a lawyer and uh, I used to fly fish quite a lot. So I'm quite happy to have a, a foot in each camp. <laughs> no, he was. Uh, I mean, his judgments were particularly uh, uh, known for being careful and that sort of stuff, you know. And I also like the fact as well as that you're saying like he came from that kind of say, actually, where did he grow up? Just I know we went to school. Oh, in- South Dublin, South okay. Dublin. Uh, yeah, he was the, 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 the father um, uh, was uh, the head of the um, Church of Ireland training college, um, which would have been for clergy and teachers. And the, the, he was brought up in a big house on Mount, uh, just beside Mount Anvil. Um, so they're, 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 they wouldn't have been particularly prosperous, but, you know, they certainly weren't poor if you're sending your son to Marlborough. Yeah. But he, he seemed to, like you said, he straddled that kind of divide, didn't he? Like the, the, the kind of the coming of the free state. Yeah. The end of one year, the beginning of another, you know, he was able to be, you know, fishing in the big house. Yeah. And hanging out with Jamesy. And Jim, yeah. you know, he, he was able to kind of converse, whether it was the lords or the, you know, the, the peasants, whatever, you know, that he was able to kind of traverse that whole, um, that whole spectrum, really. Like. Oh, very much so. And, uh, you know, when he, he talks about uh, visiting the, the, I think it's Kinloch House uh, on Loch Melvin, and he's talking about the, you know, the, the, the old man of the house who had, uh, who was probably born at the, the 1820s or 1830s or something like that um and you know that's the end of the old order and mm-hmm. uh, uh i mean there there is some regret for it but it's 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 only in the personal way you know tom um there's another thing that strikes me as well about the book as well and i personally think why as well as we're so fascinated by it is he, like you said he's mentioning you know the lord of the house from born in the 1820s 1830s yeah, hark back to that past, you know, and yet he's still in the twentieth, very twentieth century, and he's seeing the decline begin. It's almost mm. like that window into the kind of that changing moment where 
no, the good old days are gone. And he recognizes it as well. Um, and Tom, like we spoke, um, Patrick, to Joe Crane. But Joe was talking about, obviously, you know, the kind of what he remembers of the heyday of the sea trout um, fishing. Yeah. Um, and Tom, isn't it very much, and like you get that in the book of Man May Fish where he's talking about the numbers of fish that could be caught. Yeah. And even he's decrying what was like 20, 30, 40 years ago. Like it's, yeah, it is. It really, you know, because he, he witnesses, as, and we talked to Joe and Joe witnessed it. But, you know, he talks about the, the blue ribbon fisheries, you know, mm. and and going back and like, well, you wouldn't, yeah, would you get even a quarter? You know, if you got a quarter of, what is it, 40 sea trout, isn't it? To be yeah. in the blue ribbon club. And they had to be good sea trout. Like if you got a quarter of that on any of those lakes these days, you'd be considering yourself to have one heck of a day, you know? Yeah. And if you kept him, you'd be in jail. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I have, uh, I mean, I only really started fishing about 1980. So I just saw really the end of the stuff around uh, Loch Ina and Derry Clare and that. But I just have wonderful memories of, you know, going out, setting up tackle at about 10 o'clock, waiting for it to get dark, hearing, you know, the way the sea trout, uh, you can sometimes jump straight out just, and you know, there's a school passing through. Um, I mean, that was just wonderful. And then go off for a, uh, a drink in, I don't know, Balmhinge Castle or, the, or you know, uh, Della Macaulay's. Uh, Dallas. I was just going to say Della's. Yeah. You've been in Della's, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, I said, and I was very friendly with Della right yeah. until she died. Um, she, was, uh, she was a great angler. There's a rock actually in the bay below her, her old cottage called Della's Rock. Because, I mean, she was fishing since she was a, uh, sort of a slip of a girl, really, you know? I mean, just fantastic. Patrick, tell me, um, yeah, so you grew up in Dublin yourself as well. So how did you get into fly fishing and what's your own background? Yeah, well, my my father did a tiny bit. My um, brother did quite a bit more. But actually, it was my grandfather, who was called Sean Lester, who um, uh, was um, high commissioner for the League of Nations in Danzig and then in, uh, worked in Geneva during the, the Second War. But he retired. He loved fishing, but got no, uh, uh, got no access to it for many years. So he bought the old station house in recess. So as you travel west past Joyce's, on your left-hand side is the old station house. And that was um, the, the railway finished in 36, maybe 37. So he bought there with my grandmother in 1953. And uh, he then died in 59, actually driving up the Ina Valley <laughs> on a June afternoon. Um, and I actually have memories from the late 50s of being there. And he was a very keen angler. So he had the fishing on Glendalough, the Lahana Locks, a bit of the Recess River and a bit of the river that uh, goes out from Glendalough. Uh, into Derry Clare. Um, so that I would actually think uh, was the original <laughs> spark, as it were. And, and, and is that where you, you loved fishing, the kind of down the west, down Connemara? That was your kind Very of- much so, yeah. I mean, I spent uh, nearly every weekend that I could, and when I could get longer, I did. And I'd hop in the car at five o'clock on a Saturday morning to 
fish the Terry Clare butts <laughs> later, you know. Uh, so that and Della's, you know, the sort of um, uh, comradely nature of the thing, it wasn't particularly posh, uh, neither the fishing nor the, um, nor the uh, uh, mm -hmm. Della's place. But it was great fun. <laughs> you know? that, that, and, that's an understatement. Uh, yeah. And yeah. it was, you know, so th this was my um, sort of uh, Delphi or Alec Wallace sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, not, not, not quite the same level of, um, of sort of uh, Nobel laureates around the dinner table. But, you know. Did Kingsman Moore's reputation precede him as an angler? Like, at, you know, by that stage like that? Oh, know? yeah, 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 definitely. And he mentions a couple of his other colleagues who were uh, uh, um, well-known um, uh, fishers. And clearly Kingsmill Moore had also um, read O'Gorman uh, mm. because um, uh, he talks about the old um, uh, uh, Beats and the Shannon uh, um, fished around, around that time and all that sort of stuff, you know. Um, I was just going to ask you that. That was just leading into that, Patrick. So we have probably um, Kingsmill Moore would say like probably the best Irish angling author without without a doubt. Who else yeah. would you put up there with them? Well, I mean, I still have a great draw for um, O'Gorman. Um, uh, I mean, any man who can like O'Gorman. Now, I haven't actually read it since uh, Kevin McKenna and myself uh, did the foreword. Yeah. What's that? Thirty years ago, is it? Yeah, thirty uh, years ago, <laughs> twenty-nine yeah. actually, nineteen ninety-three. I have it here beside me. <laughs> okay, but uh, there's a description there of where they go to either a tavern or a tent, and they get drunk, and they um, they break all the um, crockery in the place, and they are ashamed in the following morning. You know, um, <laughs> that I find wonderful, but also his. Um, I think it, it's O'Gorman's fierce opinions, you know, he strongly is against this and that. And, you know, Kingsmill Moore had a bit of that, and I, I would share a bit of it. Uh, he talks about the melancholy art of dapping. <laughs> and, you know, he, had no he, time for it. And had he's no time for most things, but dapping, um, I, I think he would have a higher opinion of somebody who was gaffing fish under a bridge. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Those who dap, yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's two things you had to um, two things you had to do for dapping, which I've forgotten. But he said I might add a third: don't fall asleep. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. And sorry, the 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 other books, um, a particularly beautiful book at one stage. I had two of them: uh, the Ernest Legends and Fly Fishing. Rowlands, not sure. Uh, Newland, Newland. Newland. Sorry, excuse me. Yeah. I've never read it. Is it good? Um. I, again, I haven't read it in an awful long time. It's, a most, yeah. it's one of the most beautiful books ever produced because on the front cover, there is a beautiful um, uh, uh, engraving uh, uh, on the leather of uh, uh, a fairy fly, as it was called, uh, which was to symbolize the um, most effective fly on the urn when it was one of the best salmon rivers in the United Kingdom, you know. Mm. Uh, and that's an amazing book. But again, suffers from the um, a, a little bit of a sort of a an Anglo-centric view. So uh, the the peasantry are interesting, but 
clearly of a different cast. But there again, the book was written in, what, 1860 or something like that. I remember you actually said that in your foreword that you did for the O'Gorman, um, that basically it was the first book that was really written by an Irish author. Yeah. That yeah. up to then you had Belton, you had yeah. uh, a couple others, and basically they were um, tourists as such. And yeah. uh, looking with a bit of um, looking down on the, on the, on the peasantry. The yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, but um, I suppose that is probably then the, the the kind of attraction then, isn't it, of a, of a man may fish because you do get that sense of this is a learned man at the top of his game, but very much from an Irish perspective, like real pride in in in, in what he's doing. One thing we haven't mentioned yet, you know, it's obviously a big part of the book is his flies, the influence he had. And Tom, yeah, talk talk to us there about you know the flies. Well, it's because uh, I was just going to bring it up. I mean. I think, and I don't know, many, we've done quite a few podcasts even this summer, and I think it's we keep going back to it for various things. And uh, the last podcast we did just before this was with uh, Jackie Mahan, Fly Tire, and he's talking about dying. And, of course, we brought up the one about the, the jackass, jackass. You're right, yeah, yeah, Rogans, yeah. yeah. Uh, Rogans, and, but it, it's just back into that that we're always going back to him for certain things. And for Fly Tire, we really, you know, I mean, like the bumbles. I mean, yeah. I, they're still catching fish. Yeah. They're still catching, not just the odd fish, lots of fish. Okay, there's a bit of variance. Guys might be throwing um, hopper legs onto them, might be putting a tag of fluorescent, fluorescence on the back. But ostensibly, it's still the same pattern in the middle, you know? It's, and it is like, was it you telling me though, Tom, in the book is, um, I'm trying to remember, he, he mentions the English flies are like, uh, soldiers' uniforms, I think. Was that the soldier? Soldiers on parade. Soldiers, soldiers in uniform on parade. And ba- yeah, uh, yeah. basically, what what he's saying is, what we're saying that when you hold them up to the light, they're opaque, right? When yeah. you hold an Irish fly up to the to the light, uh, it's translucent. The light comes through it, and it starts. It it takes on a whole different look. The colors mingle, all the different colors, and that that's what he was saying was. The beauty of it, he says, while the opaque ones may work on the point, because I was just looking at it again, he says the English flies, he said, could probably match the Irish flies. Once you went up to the droppers, you had to have the Irish flies on, he said. Tell us, Patrick, just in terms of um, the, the kind of, I suppose, looking on it overall, like we, we've mentioned how there's so many bits that you can take and that people are attracted to. It's the, you know, whether it's the science, whether it's the flies, whether it's the characters, um, you know, whether it's the stories. Um, do you think we'll be still talking about um, a man may fish in 50, 100 years' time, like in terms of its influence? Oh, gosh, I hope so, because uh, what really um, uh, I was surprised uh, in, uh, I, I have my own copy of the second edition, but um, I just put his name in on the various um, uh, booksellers, you know, eight books and things like that, my goodness, there's an awful lot of the uh, third or the most recent um, uh, edition out there and seems to be a very popular book. And, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I think anybody who fishes, you know, really, really likes the countryside. I mean, nobody else is going to sit on a boat for six or eight hours on a lake except an angler or, you know, some type of nutter. Um, 
or do or the same, but you know, in what passes for the Irish Spring, you know, one of those days when there's hail and rain and then a northwest wind and you're out looking for a salmon in March or April, you know. Uh, it's, it's, nobody else goes to the places that uh, anglers go, thankfully. And, and I think, like, I thank everyone who pointed it in my direction when I first started fly fishing because it just brings you to this world that you kind of go, wow, you know, this is this is what it could have been like, you know, or could be like, you know, in your kind of wildest dreams. Yeah, and it really sucks you in. While we're on the other books there, and I'll just bring it up because um, another book, it's almost like a contemporary at the time, was Fishing and Thinking, Patrick. From yeah. Dr. Yeah, a. A. Luce. Yeah, I was Would about they... to say that, yeah, because, yeah. Um, I mean, they were both very good um, uh, um, thinkers. And for Luce, uh, Loch Conn was the big place. He used to fish out of uh, mm. Clohans with, I think, Pat Kelly. And he has all the stories from um, uh, uh, Loch Conn. But I think L- L- uh, Luce was a, a great expert on uh, Berkeley and philosophy and that sort of stuff. He was actually, I remember seeing him, he was quite ancient by the time I was in college and he would occasionally totter across the... Uh, right, the, the, yeah. The front but that yeah. is actually a really fine book. Patrick, it's been absolutely fascinating um, just talking about, any excuse to talk about a man may fish in Kingston. <laughs> I love it. It's great, like, and especially these winter nights, you know, this is what you want. Um, you've told us a little bit about your own kind of fishing um, career. Yeah. Friend. Do you have a memorable fish? We ask it of every guest at the end. Do you have a memorable fish that sounds out for you? Oh, well, I, I obviously remember my first salmon, which was quite late. It was in 1986. Um, uh, and that was uh, at Greenpoint uh, on the um, Bannhenge system, just at the bottom of Derry Clare. But actually, the fish I remember most about is the one that I am most ashamed of because uh, I was on Corrib with a friend of mine uh, who had introduced me to Corrib, knew quite a lot, you know, around Port O'Carran. Uh, the day was very, uh, there was very little wind. We went across uh, the, the lake towards, I think, in Schmackatrier, and we were on the way back, and it was absolutely flat calm. So he said, listen, throw out a trolling rod. So um, uh, I, I threw out the spoon or whatever it was on it, and within 10 minutes, I had a 10-pound, 5-ounce brown trout. Now, I should say, not only is dapping the melancholy art, <laughs> you could say the same for trolling if we want to be snobbish about such things. Oh, I agree. That's the last, that's the last <laughs> time I've uh, trolled. And that was, I think, 1988, maybe. Yeah. Double figure, though. Double figure yeah. brownie, hey? Yeah, yeah. I, actually, I think I, I think I would go trolling once if I knew I was going to get a double brownie, yeah. double yeah. figure brownie. Yeah. Like, you know. yeah, if it's double figure, it's yeah, it's, it's well worth it. Before I let you go, I just want to finish on uh, reading a uh, requiescam, and Kingsman Moore um, wrote this. Do you have it there, Patrick? Yeah, I'm just looking for the page number. Yeah, um, I'd love you to if we could finish on that because yeah, I, yeah. We spoke about Kingsman Moore's writings, and to me, this is. To come at the end of, you know, 200-odd pages of you know, pure brain. Yeah, I have it here. Will I read, oh, will I read the whole lot? Yes, please do, please, please do. Sir. Okay. Bear my body when I die, far from men and let it lie by a salmon river, where the larches troop their ranks and above the grand banks 
silver birches shiver. Stay not, stranger, passing by, for decorous lament or sigh. Where I rest beside you, go, my brother, cast your line with the craft that once was mine, and good luck betide you. There, who knows, I still may ply, or the stream a phantom fly from midnight capture. And if heaven attends my wish, bring to bank a ghostly fish in a ghostly rapture. Requiescam. Shanae. Shanae. Patrick Gageby. Thank you very much for your time. It's been uh, fantastic chatting to you. Likewise. Good luck. Bye. I thanks to Patrick Gageby for joining us on the show. And don't forget to rate, review and follow the Ireland on the Fly podcast on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Plus, you can keep up to date on IrelandOnTheFly.com as well as on Instagram. And myself and Tom will be back with another episode about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland.